Hi, everyone. This is the Teens in Quarantine podcast, and I'm your host, Christine. Today, I've got an extra special episode for you in honor of Father's Day weekend in the U.S. He's not a teen, and he's not really in quarantine anymore, but he still has an interesting story to share. He's my dad, and he's the special guest and part of my Meet the Family series of the podcast, coming up next. Growing up in small town USA, I remember doing many things with my dad, whom I affectionately call Ba, which is Chinese for dad. As a child, we had weekly outings after dinner to the playground, the local library, or to Dairy Queen for ice cream on hot summer nights. He and my mom attended every one of my orchestra performances as a young violinist. In middle school, my dad took my sister and me to the baseball diamond to work on fielding ground balls, and he taught us how to hit line drives to both left field and right field by adjusting our stance in the batter's box. This led to my sister's and my decorated, though short-lived, softball careers in high school. And then in high school, my dad made as many of my tennis matches after work, and as graduation approached, we spent many evenings talking about the future the pros and cons of various universities, and what kind of occupations suited me and that would set me up for independence as an adult. And covering over all those memories was the consistent practice of conversation. My dad loved to talk with all of us kids, but he didn't talk about just the petty things that concern kids, but he talked to us about the big themes of life, things like family, faith, and relationships. But he did so in a way that we understood him. He would just talk to us as though we were more mature than we actually were, and he expected that we would somehow understand what he was talking about. My earliest recollection of having a serious conversation with my dad was when I was probably around eight. On this particular evening, my sister didn't get to join us for the weekly trip to the library. At least, I don't remember her being there. And on this outing, he took me to walk along the train tracks. I only remember that detail because I had never been to that part of town before. And I remember thinking it was kind of exciting to be new, to be down by the tracks. Anyhow, what I remember he told me was simple, but weighty at the same time. He said to me, Chrissy, that was my childhood nickname. You are the oldest child, and part of the privilege of being the oldest is that you will get to do things first, but also you have the responsibility to look out for your sister and to help take care of her because you are older than her. Now, at the time, my brother was not yet on the scene, so my commission was only to look out for my sister. Though, by extension, years later, I would also accept the honor of looking out for my brother, too. But in that moment, I remember a sense of duty and pride that I had been entrusted with such a responsibility as to help look out for my sister. My dad loves a good conversation, and today, in honor of Father's Day weekend in the U.S., I'm sharing a conversation that I had with my dad around the pandemic and the recent events in the U.S. surrounding the protests and social unrest around systematic racism. 
My dad immigrated to the U.S. when he was nine years old from Guangdong province in China via Hong Kong. He is a decorated Vietnam veteran and U.S. Army colonel, retired. After beginning his career as an engineer in the steel mill plants of the 1980s in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he saw the writing on the wall and that his job in this industry was not secure. So he re-educated himself midlife and became certified as a financial planner, helping people manage their wealth. And it is work that he continues to thrive in to this day. This original conversation you are about to hear was over an hour and 20 minutes long. But today, I'm giving you just a peek into part of that conversation with my dad, John Yi. It's a sample into the hundreds of hours of conversations I have had with him in my lifetime. So happy Father's Day to all the dads and granddads out there. And to my dad, I love you, Ba. How are you? Good. What are you guys doing? Well, we are uh, babysitting Mateo. Yeah, so mom and I are here with Mateo. Is he easy? I don't know. I mean, uh, he uh, he cries a lot, so I don't know. But, you know, <laughs> he's only a month old. He's only a month old. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for making time to chat with me, Ba, about some of the stuff that's going on. I think it would be really interesting to get your perspective. And, you know, we've talked a lot over the last few weeks about all these things, but I thought it'd be nice to consolidate it and put it all into one one conversation. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad. Well, what have you and Mom been doing? Well, since, uh, since the middle of March, uh, our office has uh, had people working from home. And it has actually worked out quite well. I've actually benefited quite a bit from from home because uh, I've not had to commute, which has saved me quite a bit of time each day. Well, what when you're not working, what are you doing with the extra time that you have now? I started uh, making uh, baking cookies. Yeah. Because I, <laughs> I, I personally like uh, oatmeal raisin cookies, oatmeal cran raisin cookies. And I started making those and actually have uh, sent some to your sister and your brother and also your cousin Max and, and some mm. friends. Oh, wow. And they, all tell me, and they all tell me that they're good. I don't know if they're telling me the truth or whatever, <laughs> but, uh, but I like them. And I started to, <laughs> I, I, uh, on this recent visit, uh, this current visit to Chicago, I made some uh, chocolate chip cookies because uh, Stephanie likes those. Yeah. And uh, and I watch the uh, the pile of cookies disappear every day, you know. So it's been in a clear container and and I think there was like two and a half dozen and there there's only like six left. Uh-huh. So Yeah, that's very so rewarding. That's those, very uh, rewarding. Yeah. To watch your uh, creations disappear. Disappear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well that's a new side <laughs> that's a new side of you for sure, Bach, because growing up I don't remember you spending any time in the kitchen except making your Monte Cristo sandwiches for us. Yeah. Well, Monte Cristo is still one of my favorite, uh, favorite, uh, creations. And, and, you know, 
I mean, you you may remember I made those for your boys quite quite often. Yeah, yeah, they still remember it. Well, we've been talking about pandemic a lot. We talk about what's going on over there versus what's going on here in Australia. Describe to me the first time you realized that this virus was something different. This threat, you know, needs to be taken seriously. Uh, two separate things happened. One of which was a, a good friend of ours had to go back to China uh, or Hong Kong uh, on some business, and he was uh, gone for. Uh, he was planning to be gone for three weeks, and he would uh, text me or um, uh, WhatsApp or WeChat. We would communicate, and I would, you know, send out to him, "Hey, what's going on?" You know, and he would tell me. He says Hong Kong is like a ghost town. I said, what? What do you mean Hong Kong is like a ghost town? And he would uh, send me pictures of uh, mm-hmm. Kowloon, Tsim Sha Tsui, and, and Hong Kong, and the streets were deserted. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we've gone to Hong Kong so many times, and, you know, streets are always crowded. And I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, you know, there's there's curfews, and people are afraid to come out, and and people just staying put. Restaurants, although they're still open, uh, nobody's there. And he personally was pretty much quarantined in his hotel. Mm. So every day he sent us a picture of him looking out over his uh, out his window uh, over Hong Kong Harbor. It's a beautiful view, but he couldn't do anything. And the second thing that tied in with that was when China uh, locked down uh, Wuhan. You know, when the Chinese do something so drastic, when they did that and locked down Wuhan and not allowing traffic in and out, I said to myself, they keep things secret, but you cannot, you know, keep that fact that we're locking down this city of 7 million or 10 million people. I said, uh-oh, this is serious. And mom and I had a trip planned to Hong Kong in April. And I think you and I talked about it, and I said, hey, we're not going. I, I guess it was probably February mm-hmm. time frame, but yeah. I, I realized that this was a serious thing. Yeah. Well, that's a little earlier than most people realized it. I think a lot of the rest of the world was watching China and just thinking, oh, this is going to be a Chinese thing, you know, another SARS or H1N1. The advantage I guess I have is that your Uncle Jerry, uh, is a physician, and, and I have a number of uh, clients who are also physicians, and I talk to them. And now they're relating to me the science of what they know, and uh, I make the comment that, uh, well, maybe maybe when summer comes and uh, with the hot weather, co- coronavirus will go away. And Jerry said, we don't know that, okay? This is totally very different. The epidemiology of whatever this thing is, it's very different. So we cannot assume, and a science cannot assume that this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So this was pretty early on. The pandemic hasn't spread across the U.S. yet, but it was slowly creeping. Mm-hmm. I had a conference that I was invited to attend in New Orleans in late March. And my brother, Jerry, says, I don't think you should go, you know. There's a lot of people there, and Mardi Gras is going to be right before you get there. And I just don't think you ought to go. Mm-hmm. And when he told me that, you know, I said, well, my brother is a lot smarter than me. 
and uh, certainly in the science area and the medical area. So I, I call my sponsors. I say, hey, I'm not coming. And they understood. You mentioned in one of our old, um, one of our conversations a few weeks ago, which I, it struck me, you know, I was like, well, compare this to war. Some people are comparing this pandemic to like a, a world war. It feels like war conditions sometimes, you know, things are restricted. Everyone's energy and time is focused on the strategy. Is there any parallel of this virus and, and war? Well, I, I think the, 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 the differences are very apparent. Uh, when, the, when you are at war, you have a enemy that you can see. Okay. Uh, you, you know where he is. But this is an enemy that you cannot see. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's an enemy that you don't understand. When we're fighting the Japanese, or when we're fighting the Vietnamese, or when we're fighting the Germans, we know how they think. We know what their strategies are. So you can develop a, a, a campaign, if you will, of how to defeat them. But there is no strategy. Well, there is a strategy, but, you know, the strategy is science is going to develop these vaccines, but they first have to understand it. But they don't understand it. Because mm -hmm. this virus is very different than all the other viruses that we've experienced. So, yes, it's a war, but it's very different. And he's all over the place. Very different. Very different. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you think this pandemic is changing or will change the world in which your grandchildren will live compared to the world that you brought us up in? I think uh, for people in my generation and maybe even younger, I think it really emphasizes the importance of technology. I, I know it has forced me to do things, utilize technology uh, a lot more than I have because uh, I didn't have to do it at home. I, I, I go to my office. I have fax machines. I have uh, scanners. I have everything. Well, I, well, I didn't necessarily have all that at my house in my home office. So I had to find means to do that. Uh, another example is Zoom. Well, before this, you know, Zoom might have been around for quite a while, but we didn't have, I didn't have a need for Zoom. And also, what I found that uh, my clients, uh, I, have st I have clients in 15 states, and I try to see them at least once a year. Now, I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, I can meet them on FaceTime, I can meet them on Zoom, I yeah. can Skype with them. Mm. I, I, I have several clients in, in Shanghai, I Skype with them all the time, mm -hmm. okay? I have friends in Hong Kong. So I think it has forced uh, people to embrace technology a lot more. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I think it's a godsend that, you know, we do have the technology that we actually uh, see you guys a lot more, even though you're, you know, three times the distance, four times the distance further away, you know, mm -hmm. because you have made an effort. Uh, we have made an effort to see each other every uh, at least once a week. So from that standpoint, it, it's been a very positive, you know, the, the technology has enabled us to do that. As far as for the younger people, I think they should take this opportunity to really connect with the people that they really care about. There is really no excuse 
why they should not. Mm. It's very easy, other than other than the, the, the time differences, because these things are very intentional. You really need to be intentional about doing something that you feel is important to you. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads me to this uh, question is what what is the message you would want to say to your grandkids and yeah, even us, your own kids and our spouses having lived through this? The most important thing in my life is uh, the family. Life is uh, such a fleeting thing because there is no guarantee for tomorrow. And, and, and I think if it teaches us any lessons is that love your family, support your family, and, uh, and I'm talking beyond your core unit. I'm talking about your siblings, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, support each other and love each other and do what you can to encourage them. Yeah, that's a message you've instilled in us when we were really young. And um, it has carried us through all the different stages, but also the distance. You know, we're all three different cities across the world but we're still really close so yeah that's what i hope for the our our boys and you know i want the cousins to be close and and the thing the thing that i I would also remind uh, you and uh, everyone is that uh, there there has to be always someone who initiates Mm. who initiates that conversation Mm. okay because if you initiate the conversation and the other person doesn't respond, well, you try you try it again. And if they don't respond, well, maybe they don't want to. But unless somebody initiates it, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So you have to be intentional and, and, and to, do, to do that. Because mm-hmm. our lives are so busy and we have so many other distractions and things that we feel are much more important that we, we fail to re- uh, realize that. Yeah. Well, you taught me that, Ma. You did, because I um, I try to be very intentional with the, you know, not just the keeping in touch with you guys, but friends from all the different stages of my life. You know, you obviously can't keep up with every single person that you ever have met. You know, I'm grateful to you for instilling that because I am able to, you know, I keep in touch with my California friends, and then I have a handful of friends from my Chicago years that I'm still very close to, and then even back to childhood, you know, just one or two. But yeah, you're, you're right, it takes work. But I think, you know, your life is richer and deeper as a result of those relationships that can that have spanned years and miles. I think it also opens your mind, too. You become a more, like, broad-minded person when you can maintain relationships from different times in your life when you were a different person. And, and those people bring you back to, you know, remind you where you came from and where you started and remind you of that season of your life. And so you're not always just having friendships with people currently that only know you in your as you currently are. I have friends, you know, that have known me since elementary school. You know, I got my friends in Chicago who who knew me before I knew MJ before I was married. So that all, that just enriches someone's life, you know? So I, I want to teach the kids that too. I have been trying to teach them. They have a big opportunity. I said, you've got your U.S. friends and now you're going to have Australian friends. They're going to be different, but they're going to be, they will enrich your life in different ways. And collectively, you would, your, your life will be full. One, one, 
one thing I should add uh, uh, in terms of relationship is, and I, I think I was taught uh, by my uh, grandfather, and, and that is the condition of unconditionally, okay? I mean, he expressed it in, in different ways, unconditionally. In other words, uh, when you do something, whether it's for your spouse or for your children or for your brother and sister, you do it unconditionally, not in expectation of anything in return. I think oftentimes today we do things because we expect something in return. I do this for you because I want you to do this. Okay. But when you have the mindset that I do this for you because I care, I do this because I love you and not expect anything in return, your life is going to be so much happier. My grandfather exemplified that so often. I saw it in his life that he helped his brothers, he helped his uh, uh, friends, and he never, never expected anything in return. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. And, and, and that lesson, that lesson uh, taught me a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's how I try to uh, uh, treat uh, well. But your mother and I, you know, we love each other unconditionally. She does things for me. Not anything in return, you know. And when, uh, you know, we, we do things together, we do things with you guys. They say, hey, you know, this is something we want to do mm-hmm. and we want to share with you. I don't expect you to uh, pay me back, you know, for a lack of a better term. But it's just something that we want to do yeah. because we can't. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, that's the thing that I would tell tell my your kids. Mm-hmm. Right? That's good. They need to hear it because I think this, the society that they are growing up in now is where it treats relationships more as like a transaction, you know, like we're going to be friends, friends so long as it's mutually beneficial. And when it stops being beneficial or if it's imbalanced, it costs me more than I'm getting out of it, then I'm going to go find someone else. So that actually is a skill. I think that this generation even my generation has a hard time with but even more now this generation will have a hard time with because you know technology has a it's pluses and minuses and i think one of the negative sides to uh, the technology is you can feel like you have a lot of friends you can feel like you know a lot of people but you don't actually know a lot of people very well so you have this illusion that you know i i'm i'm known in the end there's no depth so that's good that's good wisdom So, you know, we're still in the midst of this pandemic, but more recently, there's been a lot of civil unrest and protests in the U.S., which has kind of actually spilled out into the rest of the world. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience living through the 1960s in the U.S. in terms of the civil rights movement and racism? I experienced firsthand uh, institutional racism. I uh, made a trip with uh, other fellow students in 1967, in the fall of 1967, to um, uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi. Uh, We were on a tour of a military reservation there, and there there was about 30 or 40 of us, and among which uh, I was the only Asian, and there were a couple other uh, black uh, uh, cadets, military cadets. So a bunch of us were uh, going out to eat, and we went into this restaurant, 
and uh, we wanted. There, I think there were six of us, and uh, four whites, myself and the black guy, and owner or the the waiter, whoever. This says, uh, "You guys can't eat here." You guys. She didn't give us a reason, but she just says, "You guys cannot eat here." And you know, I guess we were naive. I says, "Okay, well, I guess we're not going to eat here." So we left, and. I think the, the black uh, kid amongst us knew what was happening, but for some of us, we we didn't know. You know, we were that naive, and this was uh, 1968. So, so that was the first uh, indication, uh, experience, what I would call institutional racism uh, that I personally experienced, and also what happened in America. Your mother and I have also uh, felt the same thing. Uh, because when we bought our first house, there were certain areas of that we were not shown. Mm. And this is, uh, you know, this is the mid-70s. The real estate agent says, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't think you like the, that area. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you're, you're trusting the real estate agent to lead you in the right direction. And they were taking us to areas that we didn't want to go. Mm. Right? I think that was a covert uh, uh, means of excluding us and real estate industry had a, a practice of redlining certain areas uh in a community where you do not take people of color mm -hmm. to these areas they mm -hmm. redline it they circle it okay mm -hmm. these are that you can't take them mm -hmm. so that's that that's a part of the uh system of uh systemic racism mm-hmm I, I remember that very well. What you're seeing today, you know, happening now, does it feel different? What what you experienced in the 60s? I don't think so. And the reason I say that is, in my own uh, way of thinking, is a human condition. I think we are all prisoners for something. But I think when you go beyond that, try to impose your own will on somebody else because you're intolerant of them, that you will do whatever you can to deny that person or the group of people their rights, okay? Uh, that is something that I think has continued. And I think the laws of the land have changed. I think in some ways it's gotten better. President Johnson, uh, 1967, was the Civil Rights Act. He made that legislation that, okay, we will not discriminate. You know, we will not discriminate because of color, creed, or whatever, and that he made it a um, federal offense if you do not integrate your schools. And so that, that was a major step in, in uh, removing those uh, discriminatory barriers, but it does not do away with people's prejudice. It does not do away with people's bigotry. So those things still exist. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think in order to correct it, and I'm one for less government, but unless the government really enact legislation, people are not going to change. Because uh, so much of it is ingrained, so much is, is taught, and and so much of it, frankly, is because of ignorance. Mm. Yeah, well, you make some good points there that 
you cannot you can change the laws but still the prejudice and uh, bias still exists in inside people's hearts and their minds and that you can't change that that requires education and conversation and in, in introspection yeah yeah you can yeah you cannot legislate how people think and how people feel like you can legislate how they conduct business okay yeah yeah so it's really two two things that we need to confront the the u.s needs to work in not just the u.s any 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 country that's dealing with um racism is there's the legislative bit and then there's the the in individual response mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's two, I, two different things but I, I, but I should add also that uh the uh, social unrest in, in this country has been on the news uh, of late i think this problem is a universal one throughout the world if you look at uh uh, China, you know, the, the Chinese against the Uyghur. You have the uh, Muslim world, the Shiites against the uh, the Sunnis. Mm-hmm. You know, you have you have the war in Yugoslavia and uh, uh, Herzegovina and uh, where they were having uh, so-called ethnic cleansing. You know, they were trying to wipe out a whole class of people. So if you go through history, it has been a consistent thing. Okay, so the problem that mankind has uh, endured and it has not gone away mm-hmm. so I, I don't want to say that you know it's uh, people focusing their spotlight on america oh you know how bad it is but if we look inward it's the same thing mm-hmm. i mean so we have we learned from that no we have not this mm-hmm. is not exclusive of the united states mm-hmm. well i think that's why it's caught on globally people are latching on to the uh movement and saying hey you know there's racism in our country too so i think that is a good thing when it causes people to question their their self themselves well thank you for talking to me ba it was nice to (laughs) hear your always good to hear your perspective you know a lot of fathers grandfathers they sometimes don't want to talk about the past you know it's too painful or you know they're embarrassed or whatever a lot of different things i don't take it for granted that you you always want to um, teach us you know from your life experience and i appreciate that well i i really enjoy uh talking about this and uh, uh i really am very happy and more than proud of what you're doing to uh uh you know educate the the people and 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 uh um help them understand better what's going on in the world. So thank you for the opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Ba. Love you very much. Bye. Love you. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. It's never too late to have a conversation with the important people in your life, whether it's your dad or your child. Stories and good conversations are some of the most powerful memories we can give to each other. I especially appreciate my dad's advice and reminder that building relationships, especially during times like this pandemic, take intention and initiative. Meaningful relationships don't just happen. They take someone initiating and being intentional about connecting. 
yes, we're all busy. And yes, with COVID restrictions, it's difficult to physically be with each other. But that's where we have to get creative, friends. We have no excuse. We have the technology. And now, as most of the world is still in a partial shutdown, we may even have a little more time. So who is someone in your life that you could be a little more intentional with? Who you've been meaning to reconnect with or go deeper with? And like my dad said, don't give up. Initiate and then try and try again. You'll know if they aren't really interested and if you need to move on. But my guess is that you'll be more surprised than not that this person is willing and ready to reconnect with you. I'd love to hear your ways of being intentional in your friendships and the creative ways you've initiated relationships with people. So send me an email and share with me your success stories to teensinquarantine at gmail.com. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with my dad. Next time, I'll be taking us to the Middle East. You won't want to miss these conversations with some teens in Kabul. That's right. We're headed to Afghanistan. So in the meantime, keep looking out for each other, create something new, and wash those hands. Bye for now, friends.